Welcome to Adapt Peace Building. Hi listeners and welcome to Adapt's podcast. My name is Hannah and this summer I will be working with Adapt Peace Building in support of its programs in Myanmar as I pursue a master's degree in development practice. In Myanmar's Kachin state, ADAPT employs a methodology called systemic action research, in which local communities lead research to understand the complex factors that influence their environments and identify and implement actions to transform these factors in a way that contributes to sustainable peace. One of the benefits of this methodology is that it allows for community-led learning and adaptation. Today, as we face a global health crisis brought on by the novel coronavirus, the ability to adapt to new challenges and uncertainty is critical. Today, we'll be talking about how COVID-19 has impacted peacebuilding writ large. We'll use Myanmar as a case study to explore how ADAPT has responded to this pandemic, and we'll also discuss how the coronavirus has revealed new opportunities for collaboration and connection. Finally, we'll talk about the factors that enable ADAPT to not only respond to a changing environment like today's pandemic, but to maintain a culture that consistently promotes adaptation and learning across all of its programming. I would like to welcome Stephen, co-founder and director of ADAPT, and Francis, program manager for ADAPT's programs in Myanmar. So Francis, if I could begin by asking you to tell us a little bit about the peacebuilding work that you were doing in Myanmar before COVID-19, and perhaps you could describe your methodology and some of the activities you were conducting. Yes, uh, thank you, Hannah. Uh, we have uh, done a lot of activities, uh, especially we collected stories, uh, 600 stories, 300 stories from Pakan and 300 stories from Liza with the method of uh, systemic action as such. Uh, together, we, we collected uh, those stories with um, 40 action as such group. And they have uh, collected those stories. Those stories are real life of the people uh, to identify the effect and the causes of problems in their lives, people lives. And also this is um, very important. Unlike other research, they express uh, the um, causes, problem, real true stories and then we try to do mapping and systematically so that a community can lead and then find solution find their own so mapping actually came out like drug abuses human rights issues in mining area Pakan, and then a lot of students drop out from school and so um, we also started um, forming facilitator group they try to reach out to schools and then they try to form with the community. They have um, uh, uh, discussed with community leaders and then they try to find solution on to help uh, support uh, those people uh, affected by drugs and being violated by human rights. And also a lot of us then do so drop out. So they started to plan uh, to help and then to support those action groups uh, and together with uh, facilitators and also supported by uh, communities, some stakeholders. Actually, we 
also have a chance to meet with um, influential stakeholders from different areas to support our our work and actually uh, led by um, uh, communities from that areas. Uh, but uh, during these uh, issues, problem activities, and uh, there was a COVID-19 crisis uh, came and we have to stop all the activities, unfortunately. Great. Thank you so much uh, for that explanation. And it seems like um, that work is really grounded in sort of the ability to uh, be working in person with communities and, you know, hold community gatherings. And I'm sure that that has really been impacted by um, this pandemic and uh, sort of social distancing requirements. So, Steve, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how um, COVID-19 is affecting conflict dynamics in Myanmar. And in what ways has peace building and other development and humanitarian work been impacted? Sure. Um, yeah, I, I think there's two parts to that, right? So one is the impact on on how we're working. So with the methodology systemic action research that Francis was describing, this involves a lot of social organization, a lot of community meetings. So the stories that he's talking about that are collected there, um, someone's life experience related to conflict, related to conflict issues. And that obviously requires person-to-person interaction. And when they're mapped, you know, so we use this systemic mapping approach in which all of the, the causes of problems and the consequences are, are understood for all their complexity. These are large community meetings of, of 30, 40 researchers uh, that are coming together to, to do that. And then they're forming these action research groups, which is you know, the community members in these conflict-affected areas deciding for themselves, what, where is our agency? You know, how can we work in relation to youth drug abuse or the, the rights of, of workers in jade mines or the financial problems that are experienced by IDP communities? You know, how are we going to try and address that from within our resources and, and our local areas in northern Myanmar? Uh, that requires that people meet. That requires a lot of, of advocacy meetings with uh, political and military stakeholders, a lot of wider community meetings, you know, up to you know, several hundred people at times. And that cannot happen in the COVID-19 environment. So one of the the realizations was that we need to move our work online as much as possible, which a lot of the world is grappling with right now. And that's relatively easy for some people working in peace building that are used to using Zoom, that are used to using other types of digital communications to organize their work remotely. But it's not necessarily how our facilitators or you know IDP camp leaders, um, people in small villages rurally are used to working. So that's been a, a big change. But what has been interesting is that there is interest for people to start moving online um, to use, we use Facebook Messenger to communicate with our team and in remote parts of Myanmar and different parts of the world, we're all connecting in that way. And I guess the other aspect of it is to think about, you know, what is needed now that's a little bit different. And one of the implications of COVID-19, and people are familiar with this around the world, is is online misinformation. Uh, rumors, hate speech, conspiracy theories that pose risks for social cohesion. So 
we are seeing the need to do different kind of work actually because of COVID, uh, not you know necessarily working on human rights issues for workers of jade mines or drug abuse, for example, but it might be you know uh, the misinformation around migrant workers or the Chinese community because Kitchen State is on the Chinese border. So it might be addressing some of those rumors. Um, and that really gets at the, the how the conflict dynamics are impacted in this part of the world. Uh, there's an underlying or long-term civil war conflict, which is politicized and armed, but there's also a lot of social cohesion threats, and we are seeing those being exacerbated by the difficult position that so many people are getting put into because of COVID-19 and the lack of quality information at times around where the threat comes from and the tendency to target certain groups that might be seen as responsible. Um, so that's really prompted a shift in how we're working. Great. Thank you. Um, and have you seen this experience sort of revealing new opportunities to advance peace in ways that you you know, hadn't imagined before uh, the pandemic hit? Yeah, you know, um, there's a conversation and and adaptive programming, adaptive management, literature and discourse. Uh, systemic action research is a, an adaptive programming methodology. And so far as it's really intends to support communities to learn and uh, develop more effective peace building strategies and then adapt those as, as context changes. And so there's, there's a conversation and relation of these type of methodologies is is it just you know you're changing the way or being adaptive in how you deliver a program so let's say you know we wanted to work on one of those issues of, of drug abuse and human rights and now we have to work online and we can't meet people in person are we just finding a different way of, of doing that which is you know sometimes called adaptive delivery or is it that we're actually trying to see an opportunity here to achieve a new goal or, or different goals in new ways. And, and that's a little bit different. You know, so if we think about how can we serve conflict-affected communities and the whole landscape of how we live and interact with the world has been completely disrupted by this virus, it's not just all roadblocks in terms of, of serving communities. It's actually new opportunities. And, you know, if you think about some examples like uh, in Aceh in, in 2004, I think it was, when there was the big tsunami, caused a massive humanitarian crisis. A lot of people were killed. And it actually prompted collaboration between the independence movement in Aceh and the Indonesian government. And this actually enabled, to some extent, the peace agreement that was later reached that, that experienced collaboration. Or if you, know, you think now in terms of um, I believe it's in UAE and Iran are actually collaborating now with the humanitarian response to COVID. And these are typically not two states that have had a good working relationship. In this time of great disruption, it's not all challenges. There are actually opportunities for collaboration and that has implications to transcend identity divisions, work amongst and between different political constituencies and, and realize new goals. And I think in relation to the work in, in Myanmar, what we're seeing is that it's a country that's that's quite divided ethno-politically down ethnic lines and geographically. It's a history of isolation 
um, and a lot of challenges for groups to work together. And what we're seeing with the work that Francis and friends and partners are doing there is that they're kind of ironically or paradoxically being locked inside your room is enabling new opportunities to connect with people in other parts of the country and other parts of the world more. So we're seeing that there are other civil society organizations based in Yangon, which is you know um, a couple of hours flight from where this work is, that those organizations are doing work in relation to social cohesion, online monitoring for misinformation, and they want to collaborate with civil society organizations in Gichin that they haven't worked with before. And now this this opportunity and, and impetus is there to collaborate that wasn't before. And similarly, there's there's organizations that are international, like Build Up, which is um, one of the, the partners on this work that focus on um, digital peace building. They are have resources, they have experience of how do you deliver training content on smartphones that people can easily access? Uh, how do you use chatbots? you know, to provide accurate information around COVID-19 or social cohesion issues that had this crisis not happened, I don't think that our CSO partners in Kachin State would have been engaging with them on this. So it's a, you know, maybe it's because we're all locked inside and we've got more time or, or whatever it is. But I think what we're seeing is people taking new opportunities. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think I, I like the idea of looking at this as an opportunity and a chance to think in new ways and be innovative. And um, Francis, I'd love if you could share just a little bit more about um, how specifically ADAPT is responding in Myanmar to the changes brought about by COVID-19 and how ADAPT is looking at this as an opportunity to sustain peace. Yes, Anna, as Steve mentioned that um Due to COVID-19 crisis, we have to change some of our programs, um, unlike before. Like we try to change our new activities uh, that uh, we call it um, online monitoring training. So we would like to train uh, different CSO uh, from Gachin State, including some CSO from Northern Chan State. Uh, CSO, those who represent different ethnic groups, and youth and gender and mainly um, training, mainly focus on misinformation management, how we can manage uh, those information. And then CSO, we CSO try to know more about our rules uh, to manage rumors and also um, uh, how to build social cohesion uh, because of um, this um, COVID-19 crisis. Um, and we have got uh, lots of challenges, uh, problems, and also we we would like to also um, learn how to adapt a program in line with our current situation, like uh, using digital campaign, how we can use um, digital communication with each other. And also we try to create uh, how to love each other. And also we try to uh, create um, uh, love speech um, and to support each other instead of uh, blaming each other in times of crisis, how we can support each other. So, uh, and also we would like to build um, uh, strong networks and 
cooperate together with uh, different CSO, different ethnic group, and we create um, diversity in strength, and then we, we support each other, and we try to against uh, discrimination and against uh, migrants, and instead we support each other. So Francis, you talked a lot about this ability to adapt and to learn from the changes that we're seeing now. And I'm wondering, um, maybe Steve, if you could talk a bit about the importance of, of being adaptable and being flexible in peacebuilding work in general and what lessons we can learn from this situation moving forward. Yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a very interesting global moment for the whole enterprise of peacebuilding as well as you know, humanitarian action and international development that is facing this um, realization that the way that we do the work is fundamentally being shifted because of COVID and, you know, our ability to interact with each other. Um, funding flows are changing. Uh, priorities, thematic priorities are, are shifting. And, and just like access restrictions, the inability to travel I mean, has a fundamental impact on, on how we work. So it's a moment in which being adaptive uh, is obviously useful, you know, rather than just sitting inside and saying our organizations, we can no longer serve people, no longer implement our programs, saying, okay, well, well, how can we work differently so that we can still try and create that value? I think that one of the questions that it raises is what we alluded to before, which is the difference between just finding different ways to do the same thing versus seeing that the landscape of needs and opportunities has actually shifted and there is uh, new ways of achieving things that might have been better than what you originally intended. And that's not to say that we stop hearing about drug abuse or, or we're not worried about the um, financial security of, of displaced people, but just that those avenues are not as feasible to do the work that we intended before, but what is the new need? What is the new options that are available? And part of taking that that courageous view, I think, for our partners of, of seeing this as, as an opportunity is includes some kind of willingness to experiment and, and not just be conservative and say, you know, we can't do what we intended before, but what can we try here? which is going to potentially open up new opportunities. And it's not to say that it's necessarily going to work, but there's a number of firsts that Francis and, and the, our partners are working on now. And it's the type of collaborations with national NGOs like Pandia, which is a, a social impact innovation hub based out of Yangon, for example, or with, with BuildUp, this international NGO that specializes in, in digital peace building, those kind of collaborations are, are going to create a resource of, of maybe 30 plus civil society organizations in different parts of, of Kachin State in Northern Myanmar that for the first time know how to monitor for misinformation, know how to do digital campaigning for peace. Uh, this, is, this is experimental, fundamentally experimental. And we don't know what will be the result of making it a very inclusive process. So uh, we would like to have representation from a wide range of 10 plus 
ethnic groups in northern Myanmar, including the Chinese community, which is has a certain reputation, let's say, in relation to COVID-19, and there's not a recognized ethnic group, uh, indigenous ethnic group in Myanmar, but certainly is, is an influential community of people. What happens when we produce a collaborative process that includes these non-traditional types of relationships? And I think from a perspective of learning about adaptation, part of what we'd, we're interested in is what we can learn by these novel types of collaborations between different identity groups in Myanmar working on a, an issue of common interest at this time, but also folks that are outside the operating context in Yangon, the commercial capital of the country, and internationally. I think what we are interested to see is whether adaptation and ultimately better serving communities that are at risk at this time can happen because of some of these novel connection opportunities. So we'll be we'll be following that closely. Great. Uh, you mentioned this willingness to experiment and um, I'm wondering if you could expand a little bit on that and what has positioned ADAPT to be able to identify sort of this landscape of new needs and um, new potential collaborations and what has enabled ADAPT to um, respond to, to this changing landscape? Yeah, it's it's a range of factors. There's also a project that we're working on right now with Christian Aid Ireland, which is asking these specific questions of why does adaptation happen well in some contexts and what others, what are the enabling conditions? The literature says, and I think it's it's been our experience as well, that culture and leadership is really important. Like you can have a, a methodology that is explicitly intended to help you to learn like systemic action research or strategy testing or outcome harvesting or whatever mal system that you might use. But if you don't have in your organization and in your partnerships, people that believe in taking the time to reflect uh, and seeing opportunities, not just risks, um, being prepared to take some risks and to to reach over the aisle, uh, if, as it were, and connect with organizations and perspectives and hear people that you wouldn't normally listen to, then it's it's going to be difficult for any methodology in itself to to make you able to learn and, and change what you do. I, I think that we are well supported by our wonderful donor organization that's been willing to let us explore with partners a, a whole different way of, of serving communities and, and different goals and what we'd intended. So there's a there's a flexible funding environment. And then I would just give a lot of respect to what Francis and our partner Rainier um, and they have been doing in terms of checking in with people. There's really been uh, a lot of, of listening, a lot of meetings. Um, Francis, I think that the conversations that you've been having with the World Health Organization, with other CSOs, um, with our facilitators on the ground to really try and get as many sources of information as possible has really enabled us to figure out what are the alternative strategies and opportunities at this time. It sounds like ADAPT has really positioned itself well to continue serving communities despite the sort of complete 
transformation and overhaul of traditional ideas of peace building uh, because of this virus. Many of the perspectives that you both have shared with me today have prompted me to think about this time, you know, both as a moment of immense challenge and uncertainty, but also as an opportunity to better understand how peacebuilding organizations and development and humanitarian organizations as well can strive to promote some of the enabling characteristics that allow for adaptation and learning to occur all the time and not just in response to global crises like the one we are facing today. I'm hopeful that we'll see some substantial dialogue and learning coming out of this experience as we move forward. And on that note, I would like to thank both Stephen and Francis for taking the time to speak with me today and for sharing your invaluable insights and perspectives. Um, It's been a pleasure speaking with you both. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Visit us at adaptpeacebuilding.org slash blog 